This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week, it's been a turbulent year for our media companies and there will be more turmoil in 2020. That seems certain. And this week, Winston Peters set out what he wants from our media as the coalition government ponders its policy for it. We talked to the author of a newly published annual survey of the state of it all. Also, is televising the work Christmas Party really a good idea? But first, the tragedy on Whakari White Island raised important questions about the risks and rewards of modern tourism, but also when was the right time to press for answers. Good morning. Uh, yesterday at 2.11pm, Fakari White Island erupted. There were two explosions, one after the other, in quick succession. Initial reports indicated it was possible there were up to 100 individuals located on the ground uh, or around the vicinity of the island at the time of the eruption. This week, once again, we heard a New Zealand Prime Minister speaking to reporters about a tragedy on our soil in which citizens of several nations lost their lives. For many, seeing that unfold in the media, it was an echo of Christchurch in March this year and, come to think of it, Christchurch back in 2011, though a different Prime Minister then and a very different event. But the familiar feelings that evoked in many were captured by the senior writer at the New Zealand Herald, Steve Braunius, on the day under the headline, The Latest Tragedy in a Year of Grief. As a name, as a concept, White Island is about to take on a new and terrible resonance. The first thing it'll mean when we hear it mentioned, like the roll call of names, Tangiwai, Erebus, Aramoana, Wahine, Pike River, is death. And this week also reminded some people of the Pike River Mine disaster in 2010 for a more specific reason, the particular distress resulting from the delay in retrieving those who died there because the environment was considered too toxic and too volatile to approach. One was the brother of the tour guide Hayden Marshall Inman who died on the island. And on three show The Project on Tuesday, Mark Inman sang the praises of the chopper pilots who launched a rescue mission when it wasn't safe to do so and tried to save his brother. They found my brother laying down. Um, they lifted him up, put him in a, on a bit of a rise um, beside a stream and, and, and kept him safe and carried on saving the ones that needed saving. So they, they did a fantastic job. They're unsung heroes. And, and thank God they did because they, they pulled some people back that may not have survived. That's the Kiwi way. It's the Kiwi way. That's what we do. One of those pilots was Tom Storey, who also told the project that night, I'd rather break a few rules and save some lives than sit here wondering what we could have done. And Mark Inman went on to say this when prompted by News Hub's Patrick Gower. We're, we're a nation that get on and get things done, but currently it's people in the higher-ranking orders that are putting red tape in front of things that's slowing the process down. You know, when you look at it, and some people have described it as like Pike River, does it feel that way to you? Yeah, it, it certainly is. All this bureaucracy is turning into like a, a Pike River situation, you know. We all know health and safety is, is important. But when health and safety starts to become a barrier to retrieval, that's, that's, when, it's, that's when you get frustrated. And Mark Inman was not at all convinced that it wasn't safe post-eruption to travel to the island. Dare I say it, you've got Wellingtonians that are, that are geotologists, you know, trying to tell them that, oh, there's still murmurs, there's this and that. Well, the island's active. It's going to murmur all the time. And after that, on the project, News Hub's Patrick Gower summed up like this. Yeah, some real anger and frustration, and I can help explain why as well. Uh, in terms of those eight bodies that are still out there, I'm told 
that they could be retrieved within 15 minutes uh, by those helicopter pilots that know where they are. In fact, they've been put in places where they could easily go back and get them. In 15 minutes, it could have been done yesterday or any time from daylight today, they could have got those bodies back, and that's why there's anger and frustration about it. It's only natural for people to want to believe that they should be able to retrieve friends and loved ones in spite of the danger highlighted by experts and the authorities. And those with the rescue skills and the requisite courage will inevitably be frustrated at being unable to help. Chopper pilot Mark Law was another who told Newshub this on Wednesday. The conditions are perfect. They were yesterday, today, so I don't think there's, I, I don't understand why they wouldn't go. Uh, I'd go. Well, News Hub's Patrick Gow wasn't the only one channeling the pilot's frustration. A pilot who flew badly injured survivors off Whakari White Island says he'd go back today to collect those killed in the eruption, but it's not his call. That was Lisa Owen on RNZ's checkpoint on Wednesday, and 14 minutes later she asked the pilot Tim Barrow this. Do you think those um, victims should be off there by now? Oh, I wish they were. Um... You know, I wish they were. Once again, uh, you know, I appreciate people uh, are making decisions that they think are the right ones. However, I also believe that um, sometimes you just got to act. And shortly after that on Wednesday on The Project, News Hub's Patrick Gower took it up a level, literally, when he took to the air with Mark Inman and aggrieved chopper pilot Tom Storey. Mark, right now, looking at the island, what are you thinking? A recovery mission that could be done is perfect conditions to go out. It's gut-wrenching. But Tom Storey and Mark Inman did more than just air their frustration about what Patrick Gower called a government refusal to get the bodies back. He turned it towards Wellington. But someone sitting behind a desk saying it's no good, yet you come out here and have a look and it's perfect. Yeah, I mean, what would you say to them if, they, if, if you could say something to them right now? Pull your finger out and get moving. Yeah, I mean, Tom, I'm sitting with you, mate, and you're actually shaking with anger right now. Uh, yeah, just... Oh, just can't... Just speechless. Do you think the Prime Minister and officials should come up here and do what we're doing now? Have a look? Mate, I challenge Jacinda Ardern to come out and have a look for herself. Tom's story went on to tell Patrick Gower he'd taken the Prime Minister's husband, Clark Gayford, to Whakari White Island during the filming of his TV fishing show last year. I got her husband off safely, let me get the rest, he said on the project. And back on land, Patrick Gower told the project's viewers that Mark Inman had already put that in writing to the Prime Minister, asking for her permission to go it alone to get his brother back. A body at all, I'm writing to ask for a pardon for my actions of a personal recovery. Now the Prime Minister's office got back to him, said it was an incredibly tough time for him and his whanau, and that they have passed his email on to the Minister of Police, who will be getting in touch with him very soon. Now I can tell you that I've been talking to Mark Inman, and the Minister of Police has not got in contact, despite it being a number of hours. Police Minister Stuart Nash did reply later, and the answer was no. But on Twitter, Patrick Gower copped criticism for dragging the Prime Minister's family into the issue and for stirring the emotions of people in grief, as well as some of the pilots who'd been through the worst of times 48 hours earlier. And Patrick Gower followed up with this tweet. 20 minutes. That's what's needed to get the bodies off White Island. The chopper pilots know their stuff. The Prime Minister needs to listen to them and the families. We need to give them that 20 minutes. Here, the former political editor, urging the Prime Minister to disregard expert advice and overturn police instructions, crossed over into campaigning journalism. 
But after two nights of seeing and hearing the mounting frustration of those who wanted to get the job done, the project's viewers would have been wondering, what was the problem? Well, Patrick Gower had this summary for them on Wednesday night. Two things are preventing that from happening. The threat of an eruption uh, there and also uh, that gas, that gas that's kind of going over it, those toxic sort of fumes. Uh, from what I could see today, those toxic fumes were really not a problem. They're totally blown away. So that problem is out of it. They're asking for 20 minutes uh, out there, guys. Thanks, Paddy. Uh, really compelling report. Compelling, yes. Comprehensive, not really. When the recovery mission by Defence Force personnel did get underway on Friday morning, the whole thing took several hours, not 20 minutes. Experts were assessing the risk and making recommendations based on much more than what Patrick Gower called toxic sort of fumes and gas clouds that he could see from the helicopter five kilometres away on Wednesday night. And those experts were not on the project that night. The night before, they did have University of Canterbury volcanologist Tom Wilson on the show, and he said this on the show about the danger. Um, that they'll be very concerned about a second, an, another eruption occurring, which could lead to um, more volcanic debris or, or even those um, pyroclastic surges that I was, I was describing before, um, affecting areas where they're looking to try and um, access. Shortly before that, on News Talk ZB's Drive show the same day, Heather Duplessy-Allen had her own first take on the role of first responders when she said the whole thing felt like Pike River all over again to her. If the private citizens hadn't gone to rescue the injured, would they still be there? Would police have gone for them? These are the questions that we need answered before we know if police made the right call. But regardless, we're going to have to make a decision as a country about what we want our first responders to do. Another interesting use of we there. Are we really all going to have to redefine the job description of our first responders? And if so, on what grounds? Heather Duplessy-Ellen didn't say in a comment piece that was mainly a series of unanswered questions. The day after that, reporters in Fakatane covering the story voiced discontent about not having questions at a short, sharp press conference, which eventually prompted the police minister to demand greater transparency from police leaders. Thank you very much. This is totally unreasonable. We've had four minutes. Really? Seven News's Robert Avadia quick to voice the frustration felt in the room. You've got a lot of people dead in your country and they're cutting short a press conference after a few minutes. Another echo there of the Pike River disaster where Australian journalist Ian Higgins confronted police and mine bosses in press conferences in a way which startled both them and local reporters. And in hindsight, he was right about them not being as forthcoming as they should have been. But this week, it wasn't just Wellington-based office health and safety types, as Mark Inman intimated, who believed that Fakari White Island was unsafe for retrieval missions after the eruption. But it is entirely legitimate still for media to wonder whether a risk-averse culture might have influenced the decision-makers' choices on that, and the prospect of an official inquiry picking over people's actions on the day might have had an influence too. Writing on scoop.co.nz, Gordon Campbell reckoned that the first responders were able to do what they did on Monday only because they did it too fast for police to have the chance to stop them. And then he looked back at the Pike River inquiry for pointers. The Royal Commission dismissed the criticism that a rescue attempt might have been possible between the first explosion and the second explosion five days later. However, the Commission has also criticised the cumbersome nature of the emergency response which could have impeded a rescue had one proved possible. And what the inquiry into this week's tragedy has to say about that will be interesting when it's all done.
For journalists, emergency mode is becoming increasingly familiar these days. Reporters across the media, many of whom are now experienced at emergency journalism, did a fine job bringing what was known to be true to the information-hungry public, and they also conveyed the lack of clarity in what had yet to be confirmed. But even in the absence of some key facts from official sources, even two and three days after the eruption, most media didn't speculate on what was not known or play fast and loose with people's emotions. The project show on three last Tuesday allowed several of those people who did what they could at the scene to tell their stories in their own words. And they also showed how Fakatane and specifically Nati Awa, responded to the crisis too. But it wasn't long before difficult and raw questions arose about whether people should have been in harm's way at all, one way or another. As News Hub at Six host Mike McRoberts told viewers on Tuesday night, overseas media were putting those questions fairly forcefully. The eruption has made headlines all around the world with many news agencies and families asking why tourists were allowed anywhere near a live volcano in the first place. The Washington Post quoted the mother of newlyweds from the US as saying she was livid they were allowed in such a dangerous place. And when Monash University volcanologist Ray Cass called White Island a disaster waiting to happen for many years, it was not ignored by our media. This is not a volcano that can be trusted even at times when the alert levels are low. Volcanologist Raymond Cass says it was a disaster waiting to happen. There are many volcanic hazards which could all conspire at the same time to produce a disaster. John Campbell asked the Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern about that in Fakatane on TVNZ's Breakfast News on Tuesday morning. Had we, have we become too casual about the safety on what was an active volcano? And again, these because these are um, questions that go to um, the heart of the issue, um, you'll forgive why uh, I, I don't wish to, to get ahead of what needs to be really a proper investigation with people with expertise. But in a live interview just before that, Duncan Garner on the AM show pressed the Prime Minister for a prognosis on the injured. The burns, now the fact you've sent them around the country would indicate that these are very, very serious burns because we've heard the temperatures could have been 900 degrees. So, I mean, that's huge. Um, Given that, are they survivable, these burns? What's the early advice? All all I can say is that there are a number who are in critical condition. Um, Beyond that, I can't give specifics um, around some of those numbers. And obviously you'll appreciate that that information, as we have it to hand, is is information that that those um, working across the operation are looking to provide directly to, to family members. But in fact, Duncan Garner didn't seem to appreciate the families needed the personal details before his viewers and listeners. How many children, Prime Minister, uh, have been caught up in this? Uh, That that question was asked um, this morning as well. Um, uh, That's not something I can confirm this morning, Duncan. And Duncan Garner wasn't letting that drop. Can we assume, though, that there are are a number of kids or some kids, uh, some little, little kids involved here? Oh, look, that, that's just, Duncan, something, uh, simply that's not for me to confirm. That If you'll um, of, forgive me, that's something okay. I wish to leave to, to the police. Okay. Well, that was indeed a matter best left to police. Duncan Garner's way of asking Jacinda Ardern if there should have been tourists on Whakari White Island at all was this. I'm getting emails on, on every sort of 30 seconds here this morning from people saying, why do we yep. go out to this volcano if it's so unpredictable? And if it's so unpredictable, let's, yep. let's stop ourselves from going there because we can't even climb trees in the schoolyard. If those hypothetical school playgrounds were sited on the cusp of volcanic craters, that might have made some sense, but otherwise it didn't. 
However, the whole concept of adventure tourism is now being discussed by the media, and as Gordon Campbell at Scoop pointed out, by definition, adventure always includes a certain level of risk, but the regulations that govern risk management, he said, often allow commercial operators to make the day-to-day judgments. Until an accident happens, such warnings readily become part of the sales package and get treated as a marginal thrill factor. They don't get portrayed as a palpable danger that's likely to kill any customers who happen to be in the vicinity at the wrong moment and without any warning. However, the same could also be said of some media reports of adventure tourism attractions. For example, last Tuesday, under the headline, Why Were Tours Still Operating?, a former political reporter turned travel writer for Stuff, Brooke Sabin, said that the decision-making should be taken away from those who have a financial interest and put into the hands of experts who know more than anyone. Back in June, he himself wrote about a trip with White Island Tours at a time when the island was on alert level 2 and additional staff were going ahead of tour groups to assess the conditions. Brooke Sabin mentioned the apparent dangers in his article, but it also served as an endorsement with this conclusion. Travel is ultimately about creating moments you'll never forget, just like this one. None of us will ever get to Mars, but this is the next best thing. Now it seems unlikely any of us will get to Whakari White Island on foot anytime soon, and the risks and rewards of adventure tourism are inevitably being officially reviewed. The media play a big part in publicising the rewarding experiences of adventure tourism. Now they'll have to scrutinise the renewed efforts to weigh up the risks as well. While the Prime Minister addressed reporters several times this week to update them on the Fakari White Island disaster, her deputy thanked reporters for their work when he called them to a press conference on Thursday morning. Let's start by acknowledging the work of all the media outlets and reporters, and particularly the regional reporters, who have been covering this week's tragedy at Fakari White Island. It further underscores the role for news media for disseminating information at times of natural disaster both in the Bay of Plenty and in the lower South Island during the recent storm. But it was the storm faced by media outfits in these digitally disrupted days that Winston Peters wanted to talk about. News media companies, which were once powerhouses, he said, are now Sunset Industries. He spoke of the collapse of the fourth estate here, referencing Keith Holyoke, Thomas Jefferson and even Nelson Mandela along the way. And those were tough words to hear for New Zealand Herald editor Shane Curry and his boss Michael Boggs, the chief executive at the Herald's publisher NZME. Both were at Parliament, along with other NZME executives, to hear Mr Peters say that his New Zealand First Party would back NZME's efforts to take over rival news publisher stuff, creating one big news company with a better chance of surviving in a tough market. And Winston Peters went on to say that he backed government-led efforts also to reshape our public broadcasters. The future of TVNZ and Radio New Zealand passes a public interest test. It has been New Zealand First policies and position to support a strengthened public sector media. For this reason, we welcome the initiative of Minister Farfoy to progress work in this area. But the problem is, no one outside the Minister Chris Farfoy, the Cabinet and a few selected officials and advisers know what that plan is yet. This might even mean a mashing together of RNZ and TVNZ and maybe more money for privately owned media to tap into for their news and journalism. Last month, an advisory group of media bosses and civil service chiefs told the government the status quo was not sustainable for our media. And that echoed top media bosses earlier in the year, such as TVNZ CEO Kevin Kenrick and Michael Boggs. 
This year, NZME took the plunge and put up a paywall to make people pay for premium stuff from the Herald. And last week, the chief executive of Stuff, the publisher of most of this country's newspapers and the biggest news website, told newsroom.co.nz it's thinking about something similar. We've seen a real shift in the last couple of years in the, in the willingness of people to accept they need to pay for journalism. And also... Um, so what know, does that mean? You are considering well, it? We, yes, we're certainly considering it, but we've also been considering it over the last few years and looking at the landscape, looking at where our opportunities are and making a few bets. You know, the landscape for reader, you know, direct reader revenue and assessing where the opportunities are. Now, another thing which would change the media landscape Sinead Boucher was talking about there is NZME trying to take over Stuff, even though the Commerce Commission said no to that two years ago. And Stuff's current owner, Australian broadcaster Nine, is trying to sell off Stuff. The offshore private equity owners of MediaWorks want to sell its TV channels as well, all of which means hundreds of jobs in New Zealand journalism and the back offices are at risk. But while those owners want out of the New Zealand market, online streaming services like Amazon Prime and Disney Plus have come in, further splitting up the audience and the money it's prepared to pay for premium entertainment. The most comprehensive analysis of our complicated media scene each year is the New Zealand Media Ownership Report. It was created by economist Bill Rosenberg many years ago, and it's now published by the Centre for Journalism, Media and Democracy at the Auckland University of Technology. Its co-director is Dr Maria Mililati, and she's the main author of the 2019 report. So what's it like trying to summarise the whole scene with the ground under the industry shifting all the time? I think it's the hardest report we have uh, done. We have. I was updating the report constantly, so I thought we can now finish it off, and then something popped up, like the government said that, OK, we're considering the RNZ and TVNZ, putting them together uh, into a new entity, and then there was announcements about the media works, TV sale, the merger of the NZME and stuff resurfaced again. So it was just constant updating. We, we feel your pain on that. We really do here at Media Watch. <laughs> but interesting, you mentioned that government proposal for a new public media entity. Now, the advisory group that recommended that to the government, and they could be considering that um, any time now, uh, said the status quo is unsustainable. That was their collective position. But, uh, I mean, they didn't really specify what they didn't think could be sustained. Do you agree with them? While we were working on this report, I started to feel like Okay, we have been saying that there's a lot of trouble and the media is in trouble and last year we were somewhat optimistic and this year I was thinking, oh my God, this is really now looking quite bad. If you look, you know, what's happened with the media companies, you know, a lot of them are making losses. They're not paying dividends. Um, they're cutting, uh, you know, the operations like, you know, media work selling the television arm. So it really... And, you know, looks that this ecosystem or news ecosystem we have is on the verge of collapse. Maybe it's too strong thing to say, but I really feel like it. The fundamental problem is that we have moved and are moving more rapidly to the digital world from the print or the traditional broadcasting. Now, in the report, it says in 2019, the financial uh, vulnerability of New Zealand media companies was on full display and notes that uh, broadcasters TVNZ, Sky and NZME, um, they're all were unable to pay dividends to their shareholders. What's the significance, though, of, of being unable to pay a dividend? 
quite often uh, what happens if you don't pay a dividend, your share price drops. And what we have seen with the Sky Television uh, in a year, uh, from November last year to November this year, their share price dropped 66%, which means, again, then the value of the company is you know, shrinking. And you noted that uh, stuff, you say they're the only big commercial digital that doesn't get any reader revenue uh, for its news uh, online. Now, we've heard recently Sinead Boucher saying they're actually looking at that. What what could conceivably work for them? Uh, they indicated uh, also that they could consider the membership model. They have, uh, you know, already s- over 700,000 members in Neighbourly, the neighbourhood site they, they're running. So they could monetize maybe that somehow with the memberships. And then they say that, you know, they might actually get some memberships for people who are interested in climate change, for example, or climate-related uh, stories. So membership model maybe might be better, but I don't know. Yeah, right now they're looking to hire a climate editor, so they're making a big mm. push on that. But it's a hard ask, isn't it? When we know this company is owned by a highly commercial Australian uh, media company in the Nine Network, and they want to get rid of it. They want to sell it. Yeah, and I think the time is, you know, and time is not right to do anything at the moment uh, before you know we actually know or they know what happens with the company. So, but I understand that they do need to create reader revenue, and they are the only one, uh, only company which doesn't have a digital. Uh, reader revenue model uh, in New Zealand. And this year what was interesting, we have seen that these pay models and pay systems have expanded. So the spin-off, for example, brought the, a membership uh, program and a scoop uh, new email subscription service. Business desk launch, for example, uh, individual subscriptions. People are gradually, I think they are paying for the other services like, you know, okay, Netflix and whatever. So there is some willingness to pay if, uh, the, you know, if you have a compelling content. And the report also highlights the growing role that, uh, in the background, private equity funds and offshore funds play in the ownership of the media here. In fact, um, if we have uh, the report says, during 2019, the future of the entire private broadcasting sector was placed in the hands of two financial firms, American Oak Tree Capital and Sydney-based Quadrant private equity. So those are the two arms that own the MediaWorks company. But is it right to say the entire broadcasting sector? But of course we have Prime and Sky, there has different owners and NZME yeah. for example has radio. Private equity uh, uh, companies are owning um, or two of those companies are owning uh, MediaWorks. But if you look at the ownership also of the Sky, so Sky's uh, two biggest owners are still uh, uh, investment management companies. Mm-hmm. They own the biggest chunk of Sky. Same goes with the NZME and the, it's mainly owned by the financial institutions. So it's, you know, maybe it's not private equity owned, but it's financially owned. So that's when we're talking about the financialized uh, ownership. But what, why is this financialized ownership, as you put it, or even the, the private offshore equity, necessarily a bad thing? I mean, if other, if other companies aren't going to invest in the media and individuals uh, are put off by not getting a dividend, uh, you know, so they're not going to uh, buy stocks and shares and so on, um, should we be grateful and thankful that um, that <laughs> private equity is is involved and at least prepared to um, to to have an ownership to take a stake? But to uh, extract more value, they then cut costs, of course, because they want profit out uh, out of those companies. So what we've seen in the USA, they've been buying these newspapers and then they've been you know uh, cutting costs. So which means less journalists in these newsrooms. Their uh, interest is to maximize their return.
In the report, you note Australia addressed the question of what you've called platform power. So this is the, the big uh, offshore tech companies, Google and Facebook, such a big presence in our media now and a large, large slice and growing of the ad income that the media used to depend on. The Australian regulator, ACCC, had a year-long investigation into the impact that's having on their news media and their media more broadly. Um, but the New Zealand Commerce Commission has not responded with a, uh, with a similar initiative. Do you think it really should in the public interest? In New Zealand, Google and uh, Facebook take about 70 to 80 percent of the whole digital advertising uh, um, revenue or the, you know, the money. Surely something should be done uh, about that. Surely. And, and again, they still don't invest anything in New Zealand journalism, Google and Facebook. And one thing we have seen in the past year as well is more sharing of content between New Zealand, particularly news media organisations. I mean, RNZ, for example, has, uh, I think, more than 30 partners now who can run RNZ content if they want it. But even between commercial companies, we're seeing a bit more sharing. Do you think that's something that will intensify as, as you know, they, they seek to, um, you know, get, get as much bang for their buck, having created the content as they can? If you're sharing your content and then uh, you're asking your members, uh, you know, donate for your coverage and your content uh, money or memberships or whatever, if we get to the cycle that we see the same content over and over on a different platforms, so, you know, where is that then, the, you know, the diversity if we have that kind of you know, system, uh, then you think that you know, RNZ is becoming new NZBA, in effect. Like so a news agency are, Yeah, like a news... You, you, yeah, suddenly you are becoming kind of news agency, uh, you know, and then, but not getting, like, you know, syndication money for doing that. I don't know. I, I've, I find it a little bit difficult. And uh, also, finally, Maria, the report begins with a really fascinating section, actually, about uh, the situation overseas and what you call the convergence in the global media market, especially in broadcasting, enormous deals, you know, in excess of 100 uh, US uh, billion dollars. Um, where's all this money coming from? Uh, these companies like Disney are gas uh, rich. So they have actually uh, a lot of money. I had a quick look that, you know, how these uh, deals have been funded. You know, they have a lot of cash to burn. So mainly they, uh, you know, yeah. They have, you know, a lot of, you know, money in their pockets. And even the sort of digital native organisations, things like BuzzFeed and uh, Vice, for example, I, I didn't know till I read your report that Disney, you know, real established mm. media company, owns, owns yeah. more than a fifth of Vice and has been writing down the value of it because that, that company hit trouble. And also um, your Verizon, which is basically a tel- telco initially, owned um, Huffington Post uh, yeah. and put it on sale. Mm. So are we getting to the point where... Or a smaller number of those companies are owning a broader range of uh, of media, and we could end up with those all being kind of consolidated under the same umbrella of finance. You know, it's interesting. I think you know what happened uh, then uh, when we had the boom on the digital uh, news outlets, like BuzzFeed and Vice, etc. And you know, everyone was betting that no, these are going to be the new stars uh, in this digital world. It didn't quite uh, pan out that way. Then these big companies actually bought them, and now they're reselling them. We will see that you know these companies then end up in the hands of some private equity corporation, which then you know combines them with the other digital assets and sells them off again. We have seen that you know boom in this digital news uh, uh, natives, and then we uh, where they end up uh, is a question mark. Uh, we have actually the individuals, the billionaires, so Michael Bloomberg, um, even, for example, um, 
the uh, Lorraine Powell, the, the widow of Steve Jobs, uh, has a majority stake in the Atlantic magazine. You know, the, the world's richest guy, Jeff Bezos, um, basically owns the Washington Post. In the US, especially, and also in the UK, we have seen that the billionaires are, are coming um, and buying the news assets or magazines or newspapers. And if you look, you know, I always go back to the Washington Post that's so far so good. With You know, it's actually been working really well. Why don't we have that here? Why doesn't anyone step up? And we need a billionaire. We might lose hundreds of jobs uh, on the media sector next year. Do our wealthy people really care? Have they showed any signs of that? I don't think so. No one has put so far their hands up. And we do have some wealthy people here. So I would call them that, you know, come on, guys. This is about, you know, democracy. That was Dr. Maria Mililati, co-director of the Centre for Journalism, Media and Democracy at the AUT, talking to me there about the state of the media, as summed up in the 2019 New Zealand Media Ownership Report. And you can find links to that report and hear more of what Maria had to say about it in the online version of the story. It's on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website and the RNZ app, or you'll find it on our podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. And finally on Media Watch this week, last week the government broadcasting funding agency New Zealand On Air made a slew of announcements about new projects that it's backing with taxpayers' money to be screened to all of us next year. That included almost $10 million for new factual and current affairs content, which was billed as vital support for investigative journalism and documentaries that challenge. And to that end, $916,000 went to another 42 episodes of the politics show News Hub Nation for 2020. And that'll be the 10th year in a row that the show has been backed from the public purse for TV Channel 3. The producer declared her happiness on Twitter like this. Christmas came early for the News Hub Nation team, and she accompanied that with a cheery photo of the News Hub Nation cast and crew and Christmas costumes. And we saw those costumes again last weekend when three screened the final News Hub Nation for 2019. Simon Shepherd opened the News Hub Nation show with a question for Chris Farfoy's cabinet colleague, Kelvin Davis. Tom, very well, thank you. Well, I just want to get the hard questions out of the way first. Okay? So Chris Farfoy has apologised for getting involved in his mate's immigration matter. Should he resign? No, not at all. I mean, he has apologised to the Prime Minister. Um, he's done nothing wrong and, you know, we just have to move on. But getting the tough questions out of the way early didn't sound much like the hard-hitting journalism we need for a healthy democracy promised by New Zealand On Air. And neither did Simon Shepherd's next question. Um, but like I say, we just have to move on from that. OK, well, let's move on to something else. Um, you're the most senior politician here. How did that happen? Well, good looks and charm, you know, us Ngāpuhi, we sort of, you know, it's, it's a natural thing. OK. Um, there's been a lot of insults in the House this week. There's been and if like you thought that patsy probing of the corrections minister sounded like it was happening in a bar rather than a TV studio, it was. This was the News Hub Nation end-of-year Christmas show. Every year in central Auckland, where else? News Hub Nation invites dozens of the politicians, pundits, professional lobbyists and fellow journalists who appear on the show throughout the year for drinks, snacks and a chat. And when the hosts come round with the camera, they offer a fleeting reckon or perhaps a rehearsed gag. And at some point, some politician will play a Christmas tune. We wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. 
This year there was a comedy cameo from master mimic Tom Sainsbury, which was pretty funny, and some bloopers from the News Hub Nation studio throughout the past year, which were not really, and a mashup of highlights from a decade on air, which were much more impressive, and then regular adverts too, which was a bit of a bummer in a show that taxpayers had paid for. But what we paid for really is sorely needed in-depth coverage of things that matter. News Hub's cast for its Christmas end-of-year special seem to be operating on the principle of the showbiz show-off Noel Coward that television is for being on, not for watching. Now, it does seem a bit cranky to begrudge people a bash once a year, especially after a decade of the show on the air. But every week, New Zealand On Air releases a list of the top ten rating shows that it's bankrolled with our cash. And News Hub Nation last week wasn't anywhere on that list. The political crowd so keen to be at and on the News Hub Nation Christmas special aired last weekend was possibly not much smaller than the one that actually watched it and who also paid for it. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, and next week in our final Media Watch of the year, we'll have a look back at the good, bad, and the weird of the year in the media. So join us at the same time next week here on RNZ National.